Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Scott Hall. And if you're not familiar with Scott, Scott is a mastering engineer with decades of experience in the industry. He is the owner of MasterDisc, which is a major mastering facility that has pretty much mastered every major artist under the sun. And in this conversation, we have a really great chat about the psychology of mastering and what it takes to ultimately create a great sounding master. And it's interesting because Scott really focuses actually not so much on the mastering process. Obviously, that's really important. But we get into a lot of the details that happen before the mastering process in order to make sure that mastering goes smoothly. And when you really focus on all of these areas that Scott talks about here, it's creating the perfect recipe so that mastering can ultimately do its job. So yeah, in this episode, we talk a lot about how to prepare your mixes for mastering and how to critically listen to your mixes to make sure that they sound great and to be able to trust your speakers and know that what you're hearing coming out of them is actually what's inside of your mix so that you can make the proper decisions as to how much EQ you should have or how much compression you should have, all of that kind of stuff. And with Scott being at the end of the production process, he definitely has a lot of experience to be able to tell you what a good mix sounds like in order to make sure that mastering goes smooth. So with that said, I think that there is a ton of really valuable stuff inside of this episode. And if you're planning on sending your mixes to be mastered anytime soon, you're definitely going to learn a ton from this episode. So let's just jump right into it because I know you're going to love it. Scott Hall, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going today? It's going great. Greg, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a brief background on who you are, what you do, and how you ultimately got into mastering? Um, well, Scott Hall, I'm the uh, chief engineer and current owner of MasterDisc. MasterDisc Studios has now branched out a little bit beyond just mastering, but vinyl cutting and vinyl mastering has been part of our history since 73, uh, when uh, whereas it's actually our 50th year. Uh, as a continuously running mastering studio. I started as an intern and assistant to Bob Ludwig in 1983. Uh, so I've been part of MasterDisc for a bunch of years now. It's about 40 years you know, for me at this point. I was a trombonist, um, knew I wanted to be involved in the technical side of engineering. Once I realized what that was, it brought together my curiosity of electronics and, and my uh, you know, kind of, I wanted to be involved in music anywhere I could, but I, I was always sort of captivated with recording. Um, but back in the day, that meant, you know, cassette decks and, and you know, um, but but I, I found a, a recording uh, technology program at the time in 1980. It was very rare. SUNY Fredonia, New York State uh, School up in um, south of Buffalo, New York. And uh, they had a... Um, a music major program with a essentially a uh, you, essentially you had to audition on a classical instrument to get into the program, and there was a small a small group study program with two studios, an eight track a four track studio and a sixteen track studio at the time. Uh, it's still a very well established program. It's called the Tonmeister program, kind of modeled after the German Tonmeister. And in in in, in the slightly older days, the Tonmeister was the and is still the interface between the musician and the technology. So it's the person that 
understands music, can read music, can speak music to the musicians, but also understands the technology and can speak tech to the technicians. They realized pretty early on that um, musicians and technicians didn't get along too well in the in the same room, <laughs> at least back when technicians were in white lab coats and pocket protectors and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the that program uh, was was an amazing experience. David Moulton was the professor at the program at that time. He's gone on to do a lot of other great things, and I could recommend to anybody interested in an audio uh, as a as a hobby or career to read nearly anything that David Moulton has written on the subject because he's just really um, quite astute in his observations and his like matter-of-factness and the whole thing. So he was at the head of the program. His first year was when I arrived. So it was a, a, a wonderful time. Bob Ludwig was invited to speak to the recording class one year up there, my uh, Sophomore year, I guess it was, late in my sophomore year. One thing led to another, and I applied for and got an internship at MasterDisc, um, completed my degree, and came back to work for them in a position that uh, really didn't exist at the time. So we called it a mastering assistant, but it was no one, there wasn't such thing as a mastering studio assistant at the time. But it turned out to be a really good time for them to have an extra body, and especially somebody. Uh, young as I was and technology kind of savvy as I was at the time because computers were right around the corner and digital audio was right around the corner. And so that was where I made my, where I could, I could make myself indispensable by learning the new technology and um, uh, literally explaining it to the senior engineers there <laughs> that had, were spending all their time cutting records. So I, I got to see a bunch of different engineers work. Um, you recognize the names from Bob Ludwig and Howie Weinberg and Tony Dossi. Um Later, Roger Leon, Andy Van Dett, uh, you know, um, I'm leaving out a few, but there, there, there was, um, uh, Greg Calby came to work at MasterDisc for a while. Um, uh, Leon Sarvos, I'm sorry, the names are popping into my head, David Kutch. So I got to work alongside uh, a really, really, uh, you know, not directly alongside everyone, but got to work at the same facility with a really wide range of different uh, styles and and personalities in mastering, and I think what I bring to it, or can or try to bring to it, is a a really broad range approach, a a, a more holistic approach, a a what does the song really need kind of approach, as opposed to what technology can I use to make this thing sound lighter, or brighter, and louder, and and such. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Today, I run a smaller studio. I moved our studio out of the city to combat ever-rising, the city being New York City, um, to combat ever-rising uh, rents um, and uh, difficulties and just uh, costs and getting to work and, and supporting uh, myself and the family. So the studio is about an hour north um, uh, along the Hudson River in Peekskill, New York, uh, it's a nice commercial facility, and I've expanded to uh, include a, a live recording a room about a um, about a fifteen hundred square foot, real high ceiling, live in the studio kind of vibey thing going on next door, which I originally established to to do direct to disc. But I've been finding that direct to disc provides, um, <laughs> while it provides a sort of like a tightrope act without without a net, uh, it's really <laughs> really 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 hard to to um, make it a commercial enterprise. So I am uh, modified that goal just slightly to do live in the studio to analog tape. And Very I cool. really love the sound of that. And uh, um, COVID kind of, you know, shut the door on that for me for a while. But we're back at that full swing, bringing artists in to do um, 
really minimal miking, live in the studio, analog mix to analog tape, and then ultimately for vinyl. So that's kind of full circle. That's amazing. Yeah, it sounds like you, like you kind of uh, combined all of your interests in one cool facility here. That, that's awesome. Yeah, if we, really could like do that. It, if we could do it in a boat, then I would I would have all of it in one place. <laughs> but, I, I have but, seen pictures of a studio that is on a boat somewhere, but uh, yeah, I, I imagine that being a little hard for mic stands. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a whole bunch of reasons it would. Uh, um, it's it's remarkably not quiet around a marina and yeah, out in yeah. the water. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, soundproofing think, a boat. Yeah, it might be a little challenging. Yeah, you would think it would be like the middle of nowhere, but it's it's amazing how how sound travels over the water. But I'm getting really off topic. <laughs> no, I'm I'm intrigued now. I mean, now it's got my mind thinking about how do you make this work. <laughs> well, kind of new meaning to going down with the ship on a, totally. on a record project. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before we hit record, we were, we were chatting about how um, mastering has really evolved. And these days, there's so many different definitions for what mastering truly encompasses. And, um, you know, with, with with your background, like you said, it kind of started with the people in lab coats. It was a very technical thing. And now it's kind of evolved quite a bit. I'm, I'm curious to get your opinions on, you know, the role of mastering these days and what that truly encompasses for artists. Well, I'll... I'll, I'll... I don't for, let me forget to talk about what mastering really is today. Yeah. Today, but my 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 thinking of mastering and the role of mastering is to, without sounding too pompous or arrogant, to try to be the producer's producer, to try to do everything that the producer wanted to do, but was you know either it it, it either achieved it or didn't achieve it, but it helped them uh, with that goal. Um, and that that those words give me enough um, variety, enough enough variety in 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 equipment, enough variety in in approach to address anything from a minimally mic'd uh, acoustic, you know, uh, piano recording to uh, a death metal band. Um, and because it's it's really it's not about what I think it should sound like. It's what's the goal of the project. If I'm working with an avant garde um, saxophonist, for instance. Um, that's a really different sound on a sax than uh, you know a, a classical ensemble or even a, a a a big band jazz ensemble. Same instrument, just completely different approaches to to the way it it hits you as a as a listener. And so I try to you know um, it's not that hard, but but I, my focus is always to be a fan for a day of the music that I'm working on and what would that listener really want to hear? What would they be, what would they be missing if it weren't, if it weren't there? And then, then, and I know I'm talking very sort of metaphysical about this, but this is, this is literally how I think during the day. Um, what am I, in, within the music that I'm listening to, what's drawing my attention? What is the thing that I can't seem to get out of, that I can't get out of the way? And um, if it's not the th most important thing in the music, then there might be something wrong. There might be some reason. There's something in front of me. I, the, the simplest example is one where I'm listening to a, a, um, a pop song with vocals, and clearly I should be able to focus on the vocals. But I can't get the hi-hat out of my <laughs> – it's like it's in my way. As like Pretty it's, common thing, I'm sure. It's there the whole time. And, of course, it, you know, it, it, you look at it one way, it's like, well, the hi-hat's too loud. But – you know, if you listen to it for 15 minutes, the hi-hat starts <laughs> to sound okay. You know, so it, it's, you, you've, you've got to constantly be re, in my opinion, you've got to constantly be rechecking 
what your normal is, uh, what your what your reference is, and then tap into that um, as much as possible. Tap into that uh, instant reaction feeling that you get when you hear something. Um, if you've been around uh, pro mastering engineers, you might you might notice that they react and make corrections really, really, really fast. It's it's um, it's not only because we build by the hour, but it's it's but that's part of it. But the reality of it is, you, you your first impression is so valuable, and it goes away so quickly that you want to you, you really want to tap into it. Um, when I'm working with clients in the rooms, quite often it's going to take them longer to adapt to and hear what I'm hearing. And so I'm I'm writing down my notes uh, my the very first time, sometimes before I've even reached the second chorus, I'm jotting down my notes on the song on what I think are important things. And and when I circle back to it a little later in the day, I will invariably not EQ it as much as I thought I needed to when I first hear it. But the but the ideas and the locations of the issues are vital. Um, so uh, uh, but then the part of it that I really wanted to to mention that today I'm finding it really necessary to move backwards through the production process a little bit and try to help people who are working from home, mixing from home, working in a maybe a not a profession as professional environment as they might have uh, 10, 15 years ago. Well, what I call a pre-mastering mix evaluation service, but you know it's just a big name for like let me listen to your mix and see if anything sounds really screwed up um, and uh, something that I can't easily fix in mastering. I'll give recommendations on how they could adjust their mix prior to mastering so that um, not to make the mastering easier, but to really make the mastered product when it's finished a lot lot better because I'm not trying to uh, uh, do pyrotechnic kind of. Uh, <laughs> you know, crazy moves to, you know, involve anything that involves more than one dynamic processor, like a, you know, a multi-band and another dynamic EQ because you're trying to shove things around in the mix. Almost always, I mean, literally, I, I would say always, in my opinion, you're going to get a better result if you go back and fix the thing that's driving you nuts in the mix. Yeah. So um, uh, for projects that have a professional um, producer and mixer, it's it's not even it's not even worth discussing because those people bring their level of competency and their understanding and 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 everything to the project. But if you get to the end of your project and you're really not sure of what you're hearing, you're not sure if it's good or and you know everyone told you that well if you send it to a master engineer it'll they'll be able to fix all those <laughs> things. Well, it's you know it may or <laughs> that may or may not be true. It really depends on how. Um, uh, non-standard. <laughs> how uh, how depending on how how well you know your listening environment. I'll put it that way. That's the that's the the totally. easiest way to put it. Um, you can mix on anything if you know it really well. Of course, I agree with that. Mastering's really kind of evolved from this um, high level, bring it to the master to get their final blessing on it, to a kind of a more of a collaborative approach. Like, I, I really think this would be better if you did this, that, or the other thing. So that, that, that's how it's changed for me. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, the truth is that this whole production process, it, it's one step leads to the next, which leads to the next. And, you know, you have to kind of start at the source. You have to, in the recording stage, you have to get good source tones because there's only so much that you can mix to make those recordings sound as good as they can, right? If you if you've got poor recordings and mixing, you're not going to be able to fix it. And same with taking a master of a mix. Like if the mix sucks, the master is only going to get so good, you know. 
That's absolutely the case. We can make jokes about it, and and there's catchphrases all throughout the industry about this. But you know, the fix it. You know, we'll we'll fix it in the mix. We'll fix it in the mastering. We'll fix it in the shrink wrap. <laughs> you know, it's it's like it's like everybody's kind of looking to the next stage. To, you know, we'll just we'll fix it in the marketing. I skipped that one, and then we'll fix it in the shrink. <laughs> um, um, the but my the the point really is, um, it doesn't have to be expensive to be well planned and well thought out. So you know. Pre-planning, pre-production. Uh, I'm sure you preach this, uh, you know, um, well to um, uh, uh, to the DIYers. It's, you've got the the luxury of time. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I suggest sometimes when I when I when someone sends me a project that doesn't feel like it was well thought out, but they they just kept well while we're here, <laughs> you know, we're going to do this. Well, let's add another part. Let's add another part, and it kind of comes to me, and it's kind of a messy mess. And what they want to they they think mastering is going to fix all of that. But what if you took the experience that you had and the place that you're at now after doing all those recordings, all that recording and all of that input, um, and arrange it and, and put, put some thought and process and some purpose to the whole thing, and then go back and record the, the, the ideal guitar sound, the ideal vocal sound, and a, drum, you know, a, a, a really professional drummer instead of spending hours and days and weeks trying to time a line and, and fix a, a drum part that was that you know that was you know kind of cool at the time but then you started noticing problems with it so um there have been a few projects where i've recommended people really you know it's we could spend another three or four hundred dollars on this to kind of you know put some makeup on but the the problems are are, are in the bones the problem is uh, the problem is in the bones of the song that um uh, a, a professional or even you know just a well-intended, you know, good player, you know, would these these problems wouldn't exist. So I find myself sometimes more of late than than before, but more recently finding myself trying to um, polite ways of, of of suggesting that they they need to they need to work <laughs> a little harder. They they need to put a little bit more effort into it uh, if they're going to want to get, you know. Jay Z quality kind of outburst. No, I'm I'm just picking yeah. that name out of out of random, but the, it's an between um, but between uh, Jay Z and um, oh I don't know Miley Cyrus or uh, I'm trying to think of another name, but I often but names that are kind of picked out of the air. Like man, we want this to sound like. I was like, I've got you know, really, they don't have a clue at that point in their in their careers with music how much effort and thought and determination went into making those sounds that make those great records great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I, I can understand how in your position you hear, you're the last person in line when it comes to the audio production. So you've, you've heard all of these, these decisions, good and bad to, you know, so, you, you know, you, you have a good idea of why an album sounds great and why a, an album doesn't sound great. And uh, it's funny because we were also talking before we hit record about kind of how mastering, there's like this psychiatrist role almost like, or, you know, you're, there's a psychology element to it. And, um, this is definitely part of that, you know, it's letting, letting the artists know, or the, the people who are engineering, like getting into their mindset of like, if you want a great sounding record, we have to have this approach. Like we have to take this seriously and have that vision and, and really put all the pieces together at the beginning very early on. There's a, a different approach really for everybody. Um, so I, I want to make sure that I'm really clear to, I'm not saying don't try this at home because I really don't mean that at all. I mean, 
put the kind of effort and determination into it that a, that a um, master chef puts into making his meal if you want to have a master chef kind of presentation when you're done. Yeah, of course. No, I, I don't think you were saying the opposite at all. I, I, you know, I, I totally agree with that. It's 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 really easy to, for it to get inter- misinterpreted. I think as like, oh well, it's easy for him. He's got a ten thousand dollar equalizer. He's got a fifteen thousand dollar ADD converter, and you know whatever. Yada yada yada. None of that matters. You could literally put a, t- a talented mastering engineer in a room with a finalizer, and and a set of speakers that they understood well, um, and 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 get really good expert results. It's it's. It's the archer. It's not the arrow. You know, it's not the tool. It's really how you use it. There's all sorts of great analogies for that that I've, I've used before in, in some of my own podcasts because it's a, it's a really important thing to keep um, keep in, uh, in mind uh, of late when it's so easy. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's uh, addictive to be able to go out and find information on YouTube and become like a, a, a sort of the YouTube university, you know, graduate of um, – well, a recent case in point for me is, um, you know, put, I'm putting back together a 350 Chevy V8 engine is for one of my, my watercraft. And, um, and I'm not quite sure about one of these parts that I have to put back on. So I went to YouTube and got, all, got, got some information and then found out that that information was completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to dig a little bit deeper. So, you know, it's, it's hard. In this era when there's so much information, it's really hard to figure out what's, what's good and what's not. But um, um, I think everybody means well. Um, and what, the, the good information that, they, that they're giving, the information that you're giving you is, it, uh, applies to their particular circumstance at this point. Of course. Um, you know, what's the cheapest way to, you know, do this or what's the fastest way to do this? Clearly, neither of those two techniques are going to produce, you know, the best outcome. But they will produce, you know, cheap and fast, or cheap or fast. But you know, almost never both, yeah. and uh, and certainly not good in any one of those cases. <laughs> oh, I don't even remember what you asked me. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Yeah, well, what I was curious to know, like you kind of talked about how one of the first steps in your process is really just like listening to the song, kind of coming up with this checklist of ideas of like you know what you plan to plan to do with it. Um, from there, what's your normal approach to handling the processing? Like, is there a typical chain or typical order that you like to typically work in, or you know, what what does that look like? Well, it's um, it's interesting. I I really try to not turn knobs until I have an idea of what it is that I'm going for. If I've worked with an artist before, if I've if I've, if I've worked on a, you know a, a really similar style of music before. You know, I you know I said I you know work fast and all that's really accurate and true. But it's um, you know that makes sense when I know exactly what it is that I'm shooting for. But there's a lot of times I'm working on music that I don't really know exactly what it is that I'm aiming for. And so in those instances, I sit back and and I let the music work on me a little bit. I I, I, li- I listen to it. I, it's 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 remarkable how. Um, I think it's remarkable how easy how how engineers want to turn knobs and how how we're filled with the facilities full of knobs and buttons and things to click on and and um, plugins to to install and every one of these steps that you take makes it sound a little bit better and you just keep going and going and going. But you know, at the end of the day, if you take all that stuff out, you know, is is what you've done really that much better or is it just a lot of stuff? So I I try to listen. I try to make sure that I'm in the right frame of mind. 
uh, to do the project. And, and that's one of the things that's, that's really important that I I have the the right headspace for the record. And I've not often, but I've literally called my clients on uh, some days when I've just, it's not that I'm not getting the music. I just feel like I'm not attached to the music somehow. I feel like it, I usually can tell when that's happened, when I've played through the you know, the song or two, three or four or five times, and I haven't had an aha moment. I haven't read, nothing's really clicked for me. So I'll go away, go do something else. I may even leave the room for a while, may decide to, you know, to work on a, a, a small tech project that I've got going in the, in the workshop or, or you know, uh, handle some uh, bookkeeping tasks that have been been languishing. And then I'll come back to it. And um, there have actually been times when I've, had, I've told the artist, I'm sorry, man, it's, I'm not ignoring your music. It's just not right yet. And I don't do this very often, but I, I find myself, by giving myself that privilege, um, I, I, when, I, when it's right, I know it, and I work through the records so fast that I don't even have to think about it. it my, my hands... What's remarkable is if I if if all I needed was some rest and a little um, 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 head clearing, the next day I'll come in and it's effortless. It's like why was I having trouble with this? I know this record. <laughs> I, I, I got this. I've done this forty five times, but the previous day it was like work. And uh, so I, I try to try to tap into that as well in my, my the flow of things. But um, listening and then imagining what it could be. You know, with some with some help, because mm-hmm. um, if I don't know where I'm going, I, I won't you know, I won't have any idea how to get there. And I don't. I think in track by track engineering, you can you can kind of sweep around and find sweet spots and sort of imagine you can sort of build something from scratch without a plan. But I think at the mastering level, it doesn't work. Um, I think you, you're tempted to over-EQ and over-compress if you're just kind of like looking for a vibe. But if you have a sound in your head, something that sounds familiar to you, or wouldn't this be cool if, if not only was this just a little clearer, but if it had this relaxed openness about it. So it's not just brighter. It needs to be, it needs to be relaxed and brighter. You know? mm-hmm. And so if without, that, without that target, without that idea of where you're going, um, I'm I'm afraid that the knob turning uh, can be de- can be deceiving, and for sure, r- really, really, really is a problem when you're excuse me when you're picking up um, picking up presets and pulling up plugins and um, picking through a set of sounds because uh, you you have to tell yourself that you know the first thing you hear is not the best that you have to like you know spend some time um, in, in investigating some options and being real. And being real with yourself about the results, plugin. I don't. I don't. I use both, but when I'm using um, in the box uh, processes um, for mastering, I want to make sure that I'm not EQing any one decimal of an EQ uh, more than I need to, or one quarter of a dB of of dynamic reduction any more than I absolutely need to, because it. You look at the curves and the pictures, look, it looks pretty. You think you're doing a good thing. It's louder and you punch it in and out. But it doesn't really need to be all of that. And, and I often find with plugs that um, our first impression is to over-EQ. And then, you know, you, uh, as, as we pull those uh, elements back, we find a, hot, uh, a sweet spot. That's my, my reaction with them. And to be quite frank, 
you you've you have to be able to know your you have to know your speakers so well that you can actually clearly hear the difference mm-hmm. of a quarter db of eq across the whole band so if you're turning an eq knob whether it be analog or in the box and you're not hearing a dramatic effect as you do that um the speakers may literally be hiding that from you so you may be over eqing just simply because your room is presenting you with uh, with misleading information True. Uh, that's actually how I judge uh, if I'm in a new environment. That's actually how I judge whether I can understand the speakers or not. There's the the big picture, but the 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 tool is the speakers are a tool for me if I can perceive that you know. I mean, I usually say half dB. I really my my main speakers. I want to be able to hear a, a tenth of a dB of EQ. But if I can hear a quarter dB of EQ. Um, whether or not it's better or worse, that's not really the point. I need to be able to tell that, you know, one and a quarter dB is different than one and a half dB at uh, at 300 hertz. And um, you might be surprised how, how often small speakers um, with a kind of a, often with a kind of lumpy low end response, how, um, how often that your EQ is hidden by the fact that the ported speakers have... Um, resonant responses just just to make up the difference um, because they're they're small enclosures interesting just to name one one factor of course there's all sorts of room factors and other things to to consider as well but if you find yourself eqing a lot you might literally just uh, it, 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 the speakers may be um maybe lying to you <laughs> that's really interesting yeah no it's funny cuz i i remember very early on even when I was in audio college, like one of our professors saying like, oh, most people can't hear anything less than a three dB increment. And Ooh, yeah, those, those textbooks that, that's were, like, that's way too much. Yeah. Like, so long. <laughs> and I, and I, and I, I, I know my, my thought was like, well, mastering engineers do it all the time. So like there's maybe the general public doesn't really. Yeah, it's only, only mastering engineers can hear that. <laughs> but but I'm as a joke for everyone else. I, we we really aren't superhumans or have any really special s- skills, but we have special experience working exactly. on s- songs, other people's music, a day in day out, every day, hundreds. For me, we're you know we're somewhere between three and four thousand albums mastered at this point in my career. So uh, it's I, I've way lost track. I have no idea. Discogs <laughs> and all music have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I guess it goes to show that like with experience, obviously your ears are going to get more well-tuned to hear some of these little differences. But it also goes to show too that, you know, you're talking about how a, a tenth of a dB makes it ma- makes a mix feel different. And I think that that's a really important thing because, yeah, a lot of people, I see this whenever I do mixed reviews myself, is that people will have like, you know, 15 dB of gain on certain things or whatever. And sometimes that sounds good, but sometimes it's like, that's like way too much. Like let's dial this back and one, one was enough or, or, you know, like small increments can actually add up and make a bigger difference. My clients are always astounded when, when they ask me, you know, so what did you do? It sounds, it sounds great, but it doesn't, I can't tell what you did, but it sounds great. And you know, they insist on me telling them and I, I I usually resist telling them not because there's anything to be hidden. It's because they're going to be so underwhelmed with the numbers. <laughs> you know, it's like that was a half dB at 1.2 K on a wide bandwidth, a dB at 14 kilohertz on a on a high frequency right on, on a presence very wide presence filter, not a shelf, and a and a high pass at 24 hertz. And they go like, what? 
<laughs> you know, it sounds like you ran it through a compressor. It sounds like you, you know, you put an exciter on it and a multiband compressor. I was like, no, there's none of that. It's just this that needed the song needed this balance to be done first, and then it didn't need all that any of that gain, all of that uh, all that extra gain and uh, and uh, and push was there trying to make up for the fact that the tone wasn't right yet. Mm-hmm. And when I mean right, I I don't mean that there's a right or a wrong, but to get the song's message across, the tone was getting in the way. Um, you know, a very very simple, very easy to understand sort of thing with you know, too much 300 in an acoustic guitar recording, the singer-songwriter thing. The guitar is going boom, 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 you know, booming along. And obviously, if you get that, if you if you don't solve the tone problem first and you try to fix it with um, with a multiband compressor or with a, a peak limiter, it sort of pushes the bass out of the way, but that muddy nonsense is still there. So then you have to over-EQ the, the vocal to make it, to compensate for, for the muddy bass. But if you solve the tone problems first, then you don't need to make it loud because it sounds like it's coming, jumping out of the speakers. <laughs> you don't need to make it as loud. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like you're, you're pretty simplistic when it comes to like signal chains with mastering. Yeah, I haven't really. I'm looking at my gear here the, uh, between the Sontech, the Avalon, um, and a couple Manly pieces. I haven't made new changes to my analog rig in a long time. I mean, I've added a piece here. There's a back CQ, and and I'm experimenting with this API 550M that I use once in a great while. But it's it's it, uh, I, so it's simplistic. And even at that, I've got a switcher to to switch in and out any one of these devices because I, I don't always use them all, and I don't, I, I you know, I, I have decided on a, f- a flow. I've got an EQ before with my first compressor, and then a second optional compressor, and then an EQ after. So I, I've I've decided on that flow uh, a long time ago, and I've I've kept that in place. Um, and I have an an um, uh, a Maslik. Uh, um, Analog, um, very what I use in a very delicate way as a peak limiter, protection limiter in front of my A to D, and I find that uh, it there's just I can I can gain I can get a little bit more gain out of it without you hearing it um, if I put a little protection limiter in front of the A to D. But it really depends on the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one dB of gain reduction. Sometimes the comments come back to me from my client. Oh, it sounds like you sat on the mix. I'm like I, my eyes are kind of bugging out because I like I barely did anything. But if I take that that grabby limiter out, um, you know they're like, yeah, there's there's the sound I wanted. It's got the tone that you did, which is cool. But they wanted their dynamics the way they work. And what one, one thing that I think is important to mention is that um, I do a really wide variety of styles I mentioned before. But I also have a wide variety of of engineers and producers that come to me with projects. Some are very exacting, and some are, are you know have they have engineered and produced and mastered their mix to a point where they're very con- convinced that it's that it's right, and in many 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 cases they're dead on that it's it's absolutely fine. But they still, um, they still by and large still come through a mastering phase just to make sure. And it's literally, you know, I, I, those are those are the clients that if I find something needs to change, I literally have to debate it with them because they really <laughs> don't want me to change it. They come to mastering, but they don't really want me to change anything. But if I if I make a good case for it, or if I if I show them what I think needs to be done, they'll listen to it and go like, "Oh, yeah, okay, that that is better." Or in some cases, go like, "Yeah, I'm hearing what you're hearing, but you know, we like what we got." 
Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because you would you you want to as a novice, you you want you'd want to prove your worth, you know, but as a, as a senior master in engineer, it's like, okay, it's great. I you know, I love it. You know, as you're happy, the producer's <laughs> happy, um, you know, uh, uh I I will explain to them what uh, drawbacks there might be to their approach. But if they're, you know, if they're educated um, themselves or if they, you know, they take my advice or, or, or not, um, it's their record to make. It's very important for us to remember that, that we're, we're just executing that for them. Totally. Yeah, I guess it all comes down to like really what the goal of mastering is for a specific project, you know, and and everyone's going to have their own opinions of that. And like you said, there might be some people that come in thinking this mix is absolutely perfect, but like maybe I just want a second set of ears on it. And then you probably get other people who have no no clue what mastering is capable of doing and they're just like okay do whatever you got to do like just make this sound better i guess you know like it, there's always that like that fine line of what people are really expecting at the end of the project i actually use that exact same phrase often in my in my my initial feedback initial response to an inquiry um you know what are your goals in mastering and because uh, somebody will tell me informally right at the bat it's like you know, my record's got to be banging. I, 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 I can't stand this. You know, I, the last three things it did don't stand up to other professional things. I know it's got to be loud and it's got to be punchy. And and someone else will go like, well, whatever you do, I don't want it to be squashed. <laughs> but if I didn't ask that question, those two projects could have gone either way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know the 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 second project, you know. Um, if I would have taken the approach of the first project on the second and tried to make it loud, um, thinking that they wanted a competitive record, that would have been a failure. And they would have left, probably not told me how much they hated it, and just gone off to somebody else um, because it would have been so clearly off the mark for them. But how do you know where the mark is if you don't ask? If you don't, if you don't. Now, quite often the music tells me, and and uh, what's interesting is sometimes when the feedback from the producer or artist. Um, is is uh, a completely opposite of what I'm hearing in the music, and then I have to ask some more questions. And it's like, okay, yeah. so you're hearing you're hearing like really aggressive record here, but this thing was recorded so so smooth <laughs> with all the edges already scrubbed off of it. I, I I I you know are you are you sure? And that's when sometimes I reveal the fact. Uh, my 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 thinking here, my 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 phrase, my catchphrase to myself is: everybody kind of wears the the wounds of their previous most previous project as they come into my process or into any music production, really. So that person that said, "Well, I I, I make myself," it makes me laugh sometimes because the commentary is sometimes so misleading. That record, that producer that told me, well, whatever you do, I don't want it squashed. Well, the reason they asked me, they they told me that was because the last thing they sent out to mastering came back ridiculously overcompressed and and they hated it. So they figured they should better tell me not to make it too loud. Well, I if I interpret that as like, okay, don't touch the dynamics. They want this thing to be pristine, classical in nature kind of stuff. Well, that's not what they meant. They just meant that the, the, the and they don't tell me this that the you know the person that was there before me overcooked it. They just want it cooked correctly. They didn't want it, you know. So I, I've 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 noticed um, that the words are often um, 
um, kind of bathe in their previous experience. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I had to, that's the psychology of it sometimes. You, you need to figure out whether you're actually getting their commentary or you're getting some sort of backlash from their you know, last relationship. I'm sure everybody listening can experience, you know, has some level of experience <laughs> of how your current partner, you know, kind of dealt with you in a weird way because of their past relationship. And I, we do exactly the same thing with our musician friends. Yeah. And colleagues. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The more we talk about this stuff, the more it's just like the psychology of all of this stuff is just coming up more and more and more. And it, it really goes to show the importance of good communication and, um, you know, just everyone being on the same page as each other so that you know what, what is expected in the end. Um, I love that. Well, I, and I'll, add, I'll add real briefly that um, um, it's also okay to send a song to a master engineer and say, I don't know, man, do your thing. I've heard yeah. some other stuff you did. It sounded cool. You know, do your thing. Um, and and I usually, I'm absolutely happy to do that and interject my own opinions of my own personality into it. But I also add all the time, it's like, dude, it's your record. Um, please tell me if this isn't what the direction you want to go, because I'm not a one-trick pony at all. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of different ways to interpret uh, music. For sure. Yeah, and the other thing, too, when it comes to mastering, and, uh, you know, most one one of the big elements of mastering is this idea of translation. And translation, I think, comes in a couple different forms. One is that, like, when you play it back on a different set of speakers, it still sounds good. And then there's also translation in the fact that it's translation from your vision to the artist's vision as well. And when they listen back to it on their sets, their, their speakers, you know, are they going to feel the same way that you feel? And I guess that's, you know, that's where that those lines of communication are really important. Um, but as far as, like, making sure that a, a master translates from an audio side of things and, and, and works really well, what are some of the te techniques that you like to do to ensure that, you know, something is going to tr translate properly? <laughs> Well, it's I, I I'm I'm trained in the old school and kind of still live in the old school of concept of knowing your speakers so well that um, um, when it sounds good to me in here, it translates well most of the time. Um, it sounds crazy to say, but when you've got a set of speakers that you've heard thousands of records on. Um, and that you've gotten good feedback from, or sometimes even more importantly, the bad feedback, the like, you know, man, I didn't, I, I, you know, I wanted more bass and it's missing or, you know, um, you know, everything's cool with what you did, but the, it somehow made the vocal harder to hear. You know, that, that critical feedback is really vital to me um, constantly changing my perception in my room with my speakers. So it's not a revision request in a mix environment, uh, to my experience, a revision request um, is much more of a, uh, a, 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 it's a, it's a bigger thing. The, the, the artist wanted to go a particular way. But for me, uh, when I get a mastering revision, it, it, uh, uh, is it just an interpretation problem of the song or was I not hearing something the way I should have been? Or, you know, do I have to readjust my hearing? And, and I, I feel of, of it. I, <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing a great job of explaining this, but I, 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 I feel like, well, I've been doing it long enough to, so we can talk about how you maybe a little bit about how your hearing evolves over time. Um, and uh, not with re recorders, not with alignments, not with frequency response checks or everything else like this, but by listening to music and being critiqued on that music every single day 
um, I can walk into my room and hit play at my reference volume and and know in milliseconds, in seconds, whether or not there's enough top end, whether or not the bass is in a good place, whether or not the vocal is where it probably needs to be. Now, of course, I will continue to question my instinct on that and 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 run it through my filter for that particular producer in my mind, you know, I, I, if I've had experience with them before, but, um, so the, 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 um, the expense, <laughs> the, the top level answer to that question, um, is, uh, the, the feedback from my clients that goes a long way into making me aware of how it's translating. Um, because quite frankly, I can't listen to 3000 records in, you know, 40 different environments. I, I, I just, it's, <laughs> totally. it's physically impossible. <laughs> and, and what I, um, I don't have an alternate set of speakers in the room. I don't have a small speaker reference and a big speaker reference. And because every time I change to another set of speakers to get a different opinion, it, it causes me to reach for the EQ knobs and change the equalizers or change the the balance. And, and I, I've said, you know, I've said too much maybe on my podcast, but I haven't said it on yours before. But I feel like mastering is a perspective. It's not a process. Um, it's the perspective that I bring to the project as a as a really well-educated listener that's a fan of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's not so much a process of, okay, we got to do the, you know, the EQ first, and then we got to get the levels right, and then we got to check. That stuff is really... It, it it actually is kind of secondary. Like if the equipment did, it didn't have numbers and dials and things on the faces and just had knobs that you turned until it sounded good, that would work perfectly fine for me. <laughs> All I would need to be able to do is be able to reset it back to exactly what I had before because I need to be able to then take a revision from a client. Uh, something I was just doing today was a very, very minute little changes that were re- re- um, requested on this um, vocal uh, record. And... Um, Literally, it had to be exactly what we had previously done with just a tiny change in the bass relative to the vocal. Um, And even more specifically, it was the low end of the background vocals that was an issue. And um, because I had corrected a little bit to take a little bit of the woodiness, wooliness out of the track, they missed the kind of chesty kind of sound out of the vocals, the background vocals. It was sort of somewhat of a choir um, uh, it was a pop song, but it had kind of a choir-like uh, background vocals, and they came. They were coming across kind of thin, um, and uh, it, it was the. But everything else about it, it's like, don't change anything, but make it make this one thing a little bit better. And that's one of the hardest things to do. Um, and that's one of the other differences, I think, uh, in general with. Um, tracking and mixing versus mastering is uh, we have to be able to go back um, and really repeat our work. Um, And that's been, that's been the method for, for centuries, (laughs) centuries, for decades, sorry. (laughs) That's been the the method for, for decades because with vinyl, um, you you would cut multiple sets of parts when you were making a vinyl master and you would have to, you'd have to take copious notes and be able to reset your console exactly back to the way it was from six weeks ago or or three years ago, when you go to do a a, a remaster or a, a cut, a new set of master lacquers for vinyl production, it's kind of that uh, that scientific approach that we were talking about earlier. You know, like that white lab coat kind of thing. It was like you know everything was so detailed and so meticulously noted that uh, you know recall was definitely a, a thing because you know, you had all those that 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 all that information to go back to. 
Yeah, it's it. It was a challenge back then, and it can even be now. If you if you focus solely on the tech on the techniques and technology, you um, you run the risk of missing something really important in the creative realm. And if you focus entirely on the creative, kind of like I don't really care whether you know you run through three devices or four, and you know as long as it's vibey as heck, well you're going to miss some details. You're going to you in the case of running through more devices than you really need to, you're actually you know, taking the chance of, of, of reducing the quality of your, decreasing the quality of your production um, because you're not paying attention to the engineering aspects of it as, as much as you should. So it's a real equal balance, I think. But the clients generally aren't that concerned with the technology, in my opinion. They, they want it to feel good. That, that's ultimately why they're hiring you. Yeah. So more often than not, I'm using words that are less technical. I'm not saying, well, this is good because it's got a FDB, a 3K on it. It's like I've added a little presence to the vocal and guitar, or I've taken some of the what feels kind of like muddiness out of the, um, you know, out of the toms. You know, clearly I don't have the toms track to take the muddiness out of, but that's the that's the that's the way I want them to listen to it. To identify that that one it, it went in the right direction, and to find out if they agree with my approach. Maybe they wanted them to be, you know, um, punk rocky sort of rolling thunder floor toms, and so um, you know. Uh, but I do generally pick um, um, less technical ways of describing what I'm talking about because it, it seems to um, describe my intent um, and uh, better um, totally. uh, than. Than, than just strictly talking technical. And you never know who you're talking to. That might, some people might not know what 12K specifically is and how that relates to the other instruments, but they will understand the words. I added some air, to, and it feels like the symbols are a little prettier now. Yeah, there's there's almost like a, a musical language that you have to translate, and, and you as the engineer knows that, like, you know, feel is in a certain frequency range and, you know, air is in a certain frequency range and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, they, they're they not expected to know that. They, they're just going to describe it the way anyone else would describe it. So, um, but it, yeah. One of the things that scares me the most is when I get comments back that are very technical and very precise. And it's because <laughs> I'm, I'm like almost certain that that's not actually what they want. But, you know, I'll try <laughs> that. But more often than not, when I send them back exactly what they ask for, they're like, well, now you must have a different EQ or this because must not be, you know, like, I, I, I know. Just because <laughs> you turned a knob at your end and added it to half dB at 400 hertz doesn't mean it's going to sound anything like, you know, my EQ at 400 hertz. So it's um, that, you know, we, uh, I probably wear the wounds of my previous battles too a little bit <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, everyone's got their own, you know, especially these days with home studios, it's so accessible. So everyone can mess around with their own plugins and stuff and try to find, you know, the solution to something. But yeah, their EQs are going to be different than yours. And, you know, Q settings are going to be a factor and all, all sorts of stuff. So um, it's it's sometimes better just to have that musical language and to say like, yeah, I need more more air or whatever and uh, not get so particular about this frequency or that because it, it might not translate properly. Specifically about mastering, which is a little different maybe than mixing, is uh, this concept of, of sending a song out to a bunch of different mastering engineers and, and having them, you know, do a test master for you or do some do a sample and see if you like it or not. And um, 
I'll, I'll continue to go on record saying I, I feel that's the worst way to choose a mastering engineer on the planet. It, there is no worse way, in my opinion. Because what that does is puts each one of these mastering engineers in a... Even if they do, don't know that you're doing a shootout, there's definitely an assumption that, 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 there's, that they have to impress you with something. And impression with something usually means louder and brighter. Um, but what's really much, much, much more important is, does this person get your music? Does this person, can this person relate to your requests? Can they, can, 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 will they take your ideas and run with it and maybe even go beyond what you had in mind? Um, uh, that's, it's, it's, and it's not really that much harder. You just have to open a dialogue up with people. So what I ask people to do when, when people um, present me with that um, challenge, you know, can you send me a, a sample? I, I ask them, you know, hire me for a song. Find out how I approach your music. Um, let me go through a revision process with you. Let me give you a couple options for you to hear. And I think you're going to appreciate the person that you can add to your team roster as opposed to the person who's, you know, got this magic sauce that, that fixed that problem. Because the magic sauce guy is good for that song, but the next thing that you send them, you know, is you don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know. if the, um, I used the word, the phrase before, of a one-trick pony, and I think some of the in-the-box mastering folks rely a little too much on the same chain and the same kind of settings because, you know, you turn them on, it's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. All right, let's print that. And, Changed a couple things. Okay, yeah, that's pretty good. The it's 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 collaborative process, and we we need to hear back, you know, from the start what were your goals, and you know, uh, come up with a plan. Yeah, and uh, and honestly, it's it's way more fun to work that way than it is the other. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna um, I'm gonna stick to my guns on that one. <laughs> Absolutely, because <laughs> if I'm not having fun, the music's not turning out very good. Of by and large. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have really good communication skills with your clients, and that's a big part of how the experience is of working with you. Um, and I, I'd love to talk a little bit about preparing for mastering, because um, a lot of people here are listening to this. They're working at home. They're making their own mixes, um, potentially looking to hire a mastering engineer. What are some of the ways that you would recommend people prepare their mixes for mastering? Like, are there are certain levels that they should be shooting for, certain processing? What does that look like for you? Well, there's some technical things. I think we really want to make sure you're not um, limiting more than you intend to. And uh, I'll try to explain. There's definitely ways within the in the box mixing um, and out of the box mixing that where where you get unintended limiting going on of the dynamics. Um, uh, if you're push, if you're mixing into a bus compressor, not really paying attention to how much it's doing. Um, if you even some, you can overload buses inside, if you're sub mixing things and bouncing, uh, I've opened a, a client session that, that, uh, used a whole bunch of series of different buses and routings for the drums. And, um, um, uh, I, I couldn't understand why the drums, well, the, the mix sounded so crushed, but it was actually, um, that was buses feeding buses and just, just too, too much complexity in the mix. Uh, that they didn't even realize they were crushing the thing, but uh, you know, I was I was adamant because I could see the flat tops, I could see the the, the uh, you know the the telltale signs of an excessive uh, aggressive uh, peak limiter. But uh, so, um, one of the more more important elements is to um, 
make a decision early on if you're going to mix through your master bus plugins or or not. There's arguments for both, but if you mix with those plugins in place, um, you you oftentimes don't have the option to take them out uh, if if there's too much of them. So I I as as hard as it is. And I, and I understand the forces involved because everybody wants it to be loud and everybody wants it to sound finished even when it's not quite finished yet. But um, if, you can, if you can set up your uh, room, your, your monitoring room, so that your mix level is lower and your monitor level is louder so that you can fill the room with sound without pushing too hard against your, um, your, your output section, that's going to help your mix better. Um, you won't need as much in the way of um, mastering type plugins on your master bus if you can hear what you're doing and if you can then control the dynamics of the tracks that are causing the problems as opposed to just shoveling a whole bunch of limiting onto it at the end. It's um, um, I, I'm going to focus on that quite a bit here because that's the that and and over EQing on the master bus are the two things that that I uh, caused me to have to go back and ask for an alternate mix, and we, we don't have a great result because the mix was developed with those plugins in the chain, and so when you take those plugins out, the mix actually falls apart, and it becomes such a process of going back and establishing a whole new mix that we end up using the over limited and over EQed version and kind of calling it good because we we don't really have an option so. If you want to be able to, um, if, you, if you want to have some options uh, when it, gets, it comes time to mastering, don't set high levels and don't limit too much. Um, and that's not just because, that's, again, not me just saying don't try this at home. It's because you, it's really likely that you're doing more than you need to. Like I said earlier, if you get the tone right, you don't need as much limiting. And that's, you won't know, you know, a, a good relationship with a mastering engineer will help you figure that out. Um, uh, you know, after you've got a, 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 um, a, if you've made a mix and you send it to a mastering engineer and it comes back, it's rocking and it's everything that you wanted it to be, you know, remember the way that worked, that's, that situation worked. I've, I've got uh, many clients that, that uh, where I'm an integral part of their, their production. Even a few of them insist on, me being part of the budget when they put a project together because it's it's they mix with my master with my finalization in mind. Um, I I believe it helps them work a little faster. I think it helps them be a little bit more creative, but also they just they they want to have fun and kind of go for it and know that someone's going to be checking their work and 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 making sure that it, it's all cool. Um, had a client years ago that sent me something. I'd, I'd done several records with them, and all of a sudden they sent me something, and the kick drum was was enormous. I was like, well, just, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It was like 8 dB too loud. And I, you know, before I, you know, and I liked these guys, and I'd worked with them a bunch before, the the studio owner and the, and the guitarist. And before I just, like, you know, piled on some EQ to try to fix it, I called them and said, something's changed because your previous mixes didn't like, you know, rattle the back wall of my studio. There's something going on here. And it goes, huh, you know, it sounded really good here, but we did just change the speakers. 
<laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you did. I knew that. <laughs> and actually, we were friends, and I said, let me come over. I was, I was curious to see what had happened or how they could have possibly, uh, you know, moved their speakers or changed them in a way that uh, produced, you know. But it turns out that without their, you know, without their knowledge. They had moved the con. Well, they knew what happened, but they didn't realize the effect of what had happened. They had moved the console and the speakers forward a little bit, and that was coincidental with these um, beams that were running overhead, and it put them right in the middle of this node. And so, at the mix position, there was like no 80 hertz, hmm. but right behind the right at the equipment rack or right behind the equipment rack was like where all the kick drum was was residing. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's um I don't know if I'm answering the question or just having fun here, but the the um the the um the point so for preparing for mastering is to um you know nominal levels, not just because it's good engineering because but because it, it gives you um um uh, options later. Um Try to mix without utilizing mastering plugins um, if you can because I think it makes your mix better. Um, almost certainly 93.5% of the time, um, my mastering approach is going to sound better than your, your plugins. And I'm not saying that with any ego at all. It's just, you know, um, that's just the skills and, and years and the, some of the tools that I have. But there's that other 3% of the time where um, I, 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 jokingly kind of call it the prince effect because it's it's like you can if you do the totally the wrong thing and you, that vibe is there for you go for it go for it it doesn't you don't you can break all the rules you want if you're going to stand behind the way that sounds and you're really happy and you're really excited about the way that sounds i'll compensate <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll make that work but um if you th if you're putting mastering plugs on your on your two bus because you think the mix needs to be louder, or that you think you're making it easy for the mastering engineer, you're, you're really not. Um, mm -hmm. It's it actually is quite a bit harder to undo the effects of of, uh, and it's impossible to undo the effects of too much limiting and compression. Yeah. So the other part of the question I think was um, uh, preparing. Um, yes, and and. Um, uh, I, if you think you know who's going to master it, send off a preliminary. If you're working on an album and you worked up the first song and you're curious about how it sounds, uh, send it off to mastering and get a quick opinion on it. And uh, that will help dial in your process and give you a target for all of the rest of your mixes. And that really does make mastering easier. <laughs> That's sure. actually really well-spent time. Uh, I've gone from trying to charge you know, fairly for my time uh, to realizing that you know a few minutes of me listening to somebody's mix is really has a potential to make a big difference, and it's also a great opportunity for them to uh, just kind of walk through the process with me, tiptoe through the process a little bit, and, and of course, um, um, and kind of find out whether I've got anything in common with them and their music and their style. Yeah, of course, it's it's kind of interesting because you know at the beginning we were talking about how with this whole production process, you know, you have to have that clear vision of what you want it to sound like in the end before you start and, you know, how you have to record properly. And and it's almost like you're recording as if there's no mixing and mixing as if there's no mastering. And I think that like that, that can also be misconstrued to like what we're talking about here, where, you know, people are mixing like there's no mastering. And because of that, they're throwing on all this master bus processing and trying to make it sound like it's the absolute finished thing. And then they're like, 
okay, mastering engineer, like do whatever you do with whatever's left here, you know? <laughs> and that, that could definitely put you, put, paint you in a corner a little bit. There's two problems with that, with, with, with where that, that question led me or what that statement led me. One is if you put master, uh, uh, kind of um, make it louder plugins on your tube bus, tube bus with or without EQ, and send that off to your producer, engineer, label, artist for an approval, um, you better, you really should send that same thing to the mastering engineer because he needs to know what was approved, what the, what the artists think is their final mix. But one of the, one of the gotchas is people, you know, heard the commentary where mastering engineers like myself say, uh, it's like, yeah, you know, put the master plugs on if you really have to, to get people to appreciate how loud the mix can be, <laughs> but take them off for mastering. Well, then they send me the low, lower level, you know, a, a not dynamically compressed and not you know, limited version. And I'm left to try to figure out, well, you know, how loud do they want this? And uh, so the, the bottom line is if you're doing a master bus plugin thing and you're thinking that maybe it's a good idea to take it off for mastering, please send both. Send the approved final mix with the plugs and send the other one. It's a pretty good chance I'm not going to use the one with the plugs, but it, I, I still will play it for a moment to 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 get a sense of what the artist wanted it to sound like or what the artist approved um and it gets me ahead of that problem instead of instead of trailing behind what i mean by that is i can reach out to the producer and the label and the artist and say like okay you guys have all been listening to a really loud version of this mix but i think it's a little too crushed i don't i don't like the fact that the third chorus feels like it's squashed I think that the song kind of starts a little bit too loud, and so that that when the band enters, it 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 doesn't pow. I'd like to take a different approach to it. Give it a listen. Let me know if you like it. So if I get in front of that and explain it to them as why I've made it less loud, um, for you know for really good production reasons, then they'll they'll have an opportunity to listen to it, and make a decision. If I just send them a softer version, I that's the that's the fastest way to get fired from a project <laughs> as a mastering engineer. To send them a version that's less loud than that what they thought the mix was. They're like, "What the fuck is this? We spent how much money and it's like softer? Like, when is that?" I, I don't know if all the listeners follow my my, th my line of thinking here because I, I talk about this quickly. But when you, if you send the artist a, a mix that's got all of the loud plugins on it, and they go like, "Yeah, man, that's good. I approve it." And then you send the mastering engineer the one without those loud plugins on it. Um, uh, I, you know, what's a mastering engineer to do? <laughs> we're, we're left to kind of guess through the process. So it's quite possible that this unlimited version gives me a sense like, oh, it's kind of a kind of, oh, I kind of appreciate this. It's kind of a more open thing. They're not going for a full <laughs> pop in your face kind of sound. And so I do a delicate kind of easygoing mastering because it all sounds good, right? Well, you know, unbeknownst to me, the, the artist has already approved a version 60 be louder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, loud, louder isn't always better. And yeah, I get, to your point, it's like, well, I mean, people always perceive that louder is better. And so, yeah, if you're sending a master that's quieter back, then of course, yeah, it's going to be, you know, people are going to be like, what the hell did you do with this? <laughs> well, especially if you if you just go on instant, on your first instinct, like you just play the first, in, the intro to the first verse. 
And it's like, well, like, where's all the power? Where's it? It's, it's all the base. Everything's missing. I, you know, we don't hear um, level is level tricks our brain in many different ways. Um, the more you understand about the the actual, um, you know, volume curves and the loudness curves and how it incorporates it, how how our brain kind of incorporates that, sort of the better. But there's a point where it just becomes awfully confusing as well. But it suffice it to say that. If you're comparing two things and they aren't at the same level, your brain is giving you a lot of mist and mixed mist and and inconclusive information. Yeah. So then as far as I mean, mastering is always kind of associated with this conversation of levels and uh, there's levels of, you know, what the final master is going to be. And, and I can ask you about that in a sec. But as far as preparing a mix at a healthy level for mastering, um, are there any recommendations that you have for people there? Like I, I often hear people say like, you know, peaks, peaks at minus six or something like that. Does that, does that matter to you or? It, it really doesn't matter as long as there are is, and I don't need the headroom because it makes it easier for me to work. The headroom or, or something that doesn't go over, it doesn't end at zero tells me that um, there isn't, there isn't additional limiting involved. Um, uh, well, let me let me let me explain it a slightly different way. If you pre-limit your mix, and I'm not talking about the sounds in the mix, because you could have limited sounds and and compressed sounds in the mix, and that's all fine and good. That's rock character shaping. Rock, rock rock wouldn't exist without compressors. That's that's a, easy to say. But if you limit the mix, you're imparting a sound on the mix that's indelible. In the same sort of way, and this is the way I, my analogy that I use, and I think it communicates this well to people. If you've ever tried to work on a, a board tape or a live uh, tape that someone has mixed live at a concert, and you go in and try to use your ordinary techniques to like improve the vocals or improve the bass, and, and you realize that, wow, there's not much I can do with this. It sort of sounds like it sounds. It's because everything went through, the, almost everything went through the, the mixer or the PA and through the the ears of the uh, and and through the the sort of overwhelming levels of the concert, and it, everything has the same type of signature. So the specialized mastering magic EQs that we can do don't work. They literally don't work. Um, so limiting after EQ is a necessary requirement. And so if we agree that you know maybe we need some tone fixing and mastering, then we really need to put off the limiting until after that. My, gotcha. um, I, 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 I see it over and over and over again to fix a limited recording. I've got to over EQ it to, to, to make it work. And even then it's not really making it work. It's making, you know, it's making it as good as I can, I can get it. Um, the, uh, so I only need the, if, if you don't have a, a limiter on the master bus, I only need it to like not go over. Um, but it's safe to tell people to aim for a, a peak level of minus three or so, or minus something like that, because some meters don't always show you proper overshoot. A lot of DAWs don't show you intersample overs, you know, um, at higher sample rates. So there's some reason to have a little extra headroom there, but not because I need it for my process, because um, I've got gain. I, I can easily drop a 24, um, 24-bit uh, wave file down in level with completely a transparent process that doesn't doesn't change really anything. So it's not, it's not it, uh, in the same way 
on a 24-bit audio file, I can bring the level up without any consequences. Um, back in the day, when we had when the when all sound files were 16-bit and converters were you know 14, 15-bit, maybe you needed every dB to you, if you didn't record at full level, you know you were going to impart some distortion and some noise into the recording. Um, but that's that's not the case with 24-bit. We've got a, a very ample signal-to-noise ratio. Working quieter in your mix buses will improve the sound of your mix every time, and then uh, your master bus is the same is the same dealio. Um, it will sound better. Um, it just won't sound as mas- as as finished, and it won't sound as quite as polished. You know, um, you can. You know, we haven't really talked about the mixer, the mix and mastering in one phase. What the when the when the mixer wants to master it for you, or when if you're mixing at home, you think that you want to provide the mastering services without, you know, as, as a lower cost option to the um, um, to the artist because they're on a limited budget, and you know the mixer has them in the studio and's like, well, you know, for another fifty bucks, I mean, I'll give you a mastered version, and to them, they're thinking this is kind of straightforward. All you just have to do is make it louder and kind of dial up the top end a little bit, and it's, it sounds pretty cool. But if you haven't compared that to the kind of mastering service that somebody like myself provides, um, you may really be surprised at, 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 at what that difference is. And, and, I'll, and I'll use this, this simple phrase. If I wasn't able to prove my value my worth to every single client that I worked with, I, I wouldn't have a career. I wouldn't have a studio. I wouldn't have been doing this for 40 years. Um, you know, if, if I couldn't charge $200 a song, um, I bumped the mic. I'm going to say that again. If I hadn't charged, if I couldn't charge $200 a song uh, and have that uh, seem to be really worth that value to the client, they wouldn't come back. So Fair. there's, if, if you, um, if you think, um, your mastering's good enough, and it, and really, it, it 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 is good enough. But is it as good as, as could your song benefit from uh, uh you know the uh, another level of professional experience? Um, you won't know unless you try. Absolutely. And, um, and everybody is different. So just because you tried mastering engineer number one and tried mastering engineer number three doesn't mean mastering engineer five is gonna is gonna do the same thing or even going to approach your mix in the same way, or even communicate with you in the same way. So, Absolutely. Um, uh, I, 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 it it kind of, it, it borderline makes me a little angry at how we've diminished the value of what I do, what I've devoted my, my career to, um, you know, to a, you know, moderately uh, uh, qu- medium quality plug-in. Totally. Um, and, so, and so much so that... Uh, the word mastering is now just a marketing ploy that, uh, you know, a, a, a Sam Adams beer, you know, says, you know, summer lager, you know, remastered. I'm like, oh, you know, okay. So it's, it's, it's just one step, maybe only one step above new and improved as yeah. a marketing ploy. Yeah, that's it. That's um, very interesting. That, that's really depressing because that's, that's, you know, that it, <laughs> you're, you're calling that the, the sum total of everything that I've, I've spent my career working on. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It is that just like it has been diminished to that new and improved kind of thing. And I guess that's how some, that's how some mastering engineers approach their projects or, or some audio, like some mixing engineers think of mastering or whatever. Um, 
but yeah, there's obviously a lot more that goes into it and a lot more care that goes into it when you have someone who's a professional. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it really, uh, the best way, so I did mention how, how sending the sample out to, is one of the worst ways of choosing. I, I think to, to sum the, that up, one of the best ways is to actually have a, an old-fashioned conversation with with the person and uh, and and see how they react to your music. Let them listen to your music, get some feedback, um, and give them an opportunity to show you what you know what they can do. So one thing I was curious to know then is there's always this discussion these days when it comes to mastering as far as like final levels and with all the different streaming services out there and you know vinyl and CD and this and that. You know, there's always this debate of like how loud should a master ultimately end up being in the end. And I'm curious to get your take on it. Like, is there are there certain levels that you typically aim for when you're mastering? Does it depend on the medium? Uh, does it matter? What's your what your stance on that? Well, I'm, I'm a little unique, not entirely, but a little unique in the, in the sense that I learned all of this before digital. So, I, or it, certainly, analog mastering for vinyl was was what we did, you know. And uh, you know, as even though that. Um, be, went out of focus for for many years. That sensibility kind of remains, um, and and the fact that I'm actively involved in mastering for vinyl again on a daily basis kind of reinforces this. It can sound good, but it doesn't have to be loud. Concept. Um, it, so, um, it's it's. Um, I'm not going to give you an answer as a particular specific level here because <laughs> i really think it and i apologize for that because no, it, fair. It, it 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 has a lot to do with the goals of the project and a lot to do still to this day it has a lot to do with the the level of understanding that the producer or client or label artist uh, brings to the to the discussion because quite frankly if somebody sends me something and says it's got to be loud it's just got to be loud i, I don't love Schmuffs. I don't care about. I don't care about whether it plays. Blah 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 blah. I just want this thing to be loud, as loud as this record when I play it back. And of course, we'll do that. Um, we try to educate, but in some cases, the, the the you know the person is convinced that that's what their music needs. <laughs> and like I said earlier, it's probably because the last thing they sent out was not loud enough, so they are going to overcompensate in this case. But um, it's a fact that if streaming. Uh, well, it's my opinion, and I believe it's fact that in the case of most streaming, if you go really loud over the intended targets of this minus fourteen, fifteen luffs target, um, your mix is going to be brought down in level. Your master is going to be brought down in level when it's streamed. Loudness normalization is the thing. It's being used by most of the uh, most, if not all, of the streaming services. I think. I'm not entirely sure if all the HD streaming services are doing that, but I would I suspect they probably are. The idea of loudness normalization is to make the playback seem like song to song, the levels have been compensated for so that you can play back a track from the forties and fifties, let's say fifties anyway, and have it sound like it's, you know, reasonably enough compatible so that you don't have to go racing for the volume on your um, on your playback device whether it be your ears or computer or home theater or whatever so this algorithm attempts to um, adjust uh, attempts to determine what the loudness factor is of your music and uh, then tries to bring that to a centralized norm um, if you master really really loud well, uh, in, in other words above that target, 
the mastering service, the streaming service is going to bring your um, music down. But the first, you know, if you're a little bit over that target, um, the effects of that drop isn't that dramatic. It's actually pretty subtle. So my comp compromise that I tend to use is a loud, a little louder than Luff's uh, target, but not a lot too loud, too much louder. And, um, uh, for someone that uh, is strictly interested in um, um, in high resolution and has made an acoustic recording, and dynamics are were you know actively uh, discussed and are a very important part of this thing, um, you know my target level is considerably lower on on a project like that than it would be on a rock project where somebody's need they need to be impressive with their level. But I, I it's been still very hard to. Im get people to understand that the way you hear it played back when you, when I send you a wave file and you play it back, the way you hear that is not the way it's going to sound when it's streamed. So there are services where you can send your mix, um, uh, and, and find out, you know, have a little bit, or, and there's a couple plugs that will, uh, you know, sim simulate what's going to happen when it's streamed. Uh, one of the websites is the, the loudness penalty, uh, where you can drop your mix on and it'll tell you, how much um, uh, a streaming service like Spotify is going to reduce the level of your your mix when they play it back, and basically you can do the same thing if you have a inexpensive you know uh, Luffs meter you know on a on a on a plugin on your master bus. So it's a complex thinking process about, um, um, but it's really kind of just an extract extrapolation of all of this. Um, a compatibility and uniformity uh, discussion that we had earlier. It's just another level of detail. In other words, um, how's it going to sound on earbuds? How's it going to sound on an iPhone? How is it going to sound streamed, you know, off of Spotify? How is it going to sound when a C you know, when a CD is played back in a home theater system with the Dolby Pro Logic turned on, you know, and, and all sorts of nutty things like that. But, um, I find my 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 guiding principle with all of this is my um, my room is aligned to a level that I'm comfortable with, and when it's and when that's working well, my clients you know do shake their head you know nod their head in in in, uh, in appreciation and when so when I get it sounding great here, that translates and my clients tell me that it translates and. Um, when I violate those rules, um, <laughs> in general, in general, generally speaking, you know, uh, somebody's going to be unhappy with, with the results. It's either going to be too compressed or it's not going to meet the, uh, the, meet the needs. Um, I'm still going to, despite that, I'm going to still try to give, give, a. um, I'll, I'll say that for a typical singer songwriter or guitar driven rhythm section kind of music, um, I think it's perfectly acceptable to go over the Luff's standard um, to some degree. And my my main reasoning for that is that type of music generally has oh, maybe a little more of a monodynamic. It kind of comes in at its level. The rhythm section is playing. There aren't any, it doesn't start really soft and build to gigantic loud. Um, one of the funky things, that's a funky with a K, um, about um, Luffs is it factors the loudness over time. So if you had a, a song that was really soft for three minutes and then got really loud for th for one minute at the end, you could actually have a quite a bit louder ending volume 
than if your song was at the same level throughout the whole thing and still be within the Luff's standard. Um, there's it, it creates some issues with widely dy- wildly dynamic uh, music. Um, so I I look at it as a um, as a guideline, and I think some of the best people um, that you know do what we're doing, uh, best examples I think are using this as a guideline, not a strict rule. Um, I think it was even personally, I think it was established as a guideline, not as a strict rule, but it was initially interpreted as you shall not go over, you know, minus 14 luffs uh, for any reason, because that came from a broadcast methodology um, where broadcast audio or radio or for television could not overmodulate or they would lose their FCC licenses. Um, mm. And so maximum level was determined by management and it was not an engineer's level decision. You will, if your mix goes over this amount by more than 1%, um, you know, you'll be fired. <laughs> this is, um, or you know, your license will be revoked or something more serious. But, um, so those, but in the pro audio realm space, um, I, it's, it's a, it's an observed recommendation. And, yeah. and I think, um, I, I even have a couple of clients that um, really wanted to preserve the dynamics of their music and um, presented the challenge to me as we want it to sound good, but we do not want to go over the minus 14 um, Luff's measurement. And um, it all kind of worked good until we got to a hip hop track. Hmm. And we got this. So they were doing a variety of different styles. We got to a hip hop track and the, the, the advisor, the, you know, the music advisor uh, said, same deal, minus 14. And I said, <laughs> minus 14 hip hop thing. And they were like, hello, is this thing on? You know, because it was so much lower than what they were used to hearing, um, you know, because it was more or less 14 dB down from what would be a zero level digital master. Yeah. Because the music is so full and compressed and, um, and saturated that's the only way to get minus 14 loves is to turn the music down like 13 DB. Um, uh, so it, it, I think if it's, um, I, I know we're getting real technical with, with this, but that's a, you know, that's, um, I, I do believe that we have to ha- have some, um, uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for, right? With a, a measure of, uh, of salt or something. We, we have to take this with a grain of salt. That's what I was, uh, <laughs> uh we, 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 it's, yeah. it's not an absolute, it's a guideline. Yeah, it's like, don't get lost in the numbers. Just focus on making the music sound as good as it can. And if the dynamics are in the song, then it has potential to be louder. And if it's a song that's kind of all the same dynamic, you can expect it to kind of just stay the same. You know, got it. Yeah. It's, uh, um, I think I'll mention maybe for your, um, for your you know, younger engineer audience, that, that the effects of compression and the effects of limiting specifically are the hardest to kind of train yourself to hear. And it's the easiest to sort of be swayed by because they're usually louder. So um, challenge yourself to actually be able to hear what you're losing when you limit something and compress something. Because if you're just listening for like for the fact that it sounds louder, you'll, you won't observe the things that you're missing until three, four, six, 20 lessons later. And you'll kind of go, hmm, this doesn't, I, I'm not, you know, it doesn't make me feel happy anymore. The song, you know, is a happy song. It doesn't really make me feel happy. It's screaming at you, you know, the whole time. It's just, it can't be happy when it's screaming. 
<laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I said in a in a in a in a blog post uh, many years ago, if all of if, if if the only thing your music has to say is, hey, I'm loud, you know, then turn it up. Make it loud, go against the grain, impress the you know the hell out of everybody. But if your music's got something more to say than that, which it probably does most most of the time, you know, then consider the effects of of heavy compression and heavy limiting on whether or not your music actually is getting into people's heads and get, and being remi- remembered and and is being emotionally you know, getting where you're getting an emotional reaction from it for sure. And that goes. But that that varies from genre to genre because you know you can imagine a death metal record that's not loud wouldn't be very emotional. So you know it it it, it changes of know, course dramatically from <laughs> genre to genre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to sum things up, then I know you'd mentioned that um, mastering has kind of been dumbed down to mean you know this new and improved, like you know that that kind of thing. But if you had to sum up, in your opinion, what makes a great mastered mix? How would you describe that? Oh well, I said this years ago. One that makes it sound like no one was ever there. Like it just—it's just, it's just um, uh, a Stevie Wonder track, you know. Uh, you know, if unless you listen to that thing, uh, I, I've been recently gone back to songs in the key of life, and I just think some of the playing and and performance on that is just is outrageous. And um, uh, amongst other records, it's just just something listen to but it doesn't sound like it was mastered it doesn't sound like it was you know engineered it just sounds like these songs come across so that's my ultimate goal is to make it sound like i was never there <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to make a make a, a name for yourself when your goal is to pr- make it seem like you were never there but um somehow it, it works but it's uh it's a little challenging I, and i use that definition because i, I have to reinvent myself almost every hour um, uh, what it is that I'm trying to do. Because if I find myself cookie-cuttering, using the same type of settings, the same uh, feeling coming back out of the speakers, and you know, it's not too long until somebody gives me some negative feedback. It's like, yeah, man, the thing you did last year was, uh, it was, it was you know, I get almost immediately get feedback that it's, that it's not hitting them the same way that they're, they're, they're used to it. I totally agree with you. It's like you're not trying to impart the Scott Hall imprint on on these recordings. It's the artists that are supposed to be shining. So, um, you know, that's that's a thing that you, you don't want it to seem like you were there and that you messed with this. It's, you know, it's uh, some of my yeah, some of my favorite producers that I that I've I've I studied, but that I just I admired their work are ones where that same sort of thing happens. It's because some producers definitely put their their mark on things and and that's perfectly fine it's just not really my uh it's not my mo not my not my vibey so much makes sense awesome well scott i I really appreciate you taking the time to to do this today and i think you shared a lot of really good stuff and and given us a lot to think about um if people want to learn more about you maybe uh follow the work that you're doing or even hire you what's the best way for them to do that well, the MasterDisc website's the easiest way. Um, literally, they can uh, send a, a, a contact uh, inquiry through MasterDisc, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm there. I'm, I'm there usually, usually responding to those inquiries directly or directing it to somebody in, in-house that can help them. Um, there's, a lot of inf- there's a good deal of information on the website, um, specifically about vinyl. There's my podcast, uh, making. Um, well, we we just about to change the name. It was making vinyl at MasterDisc, and we're, I, we're, our next season is going to be called making music at MasterDisc, and I'm, and I'm going to be starting 
talking more with um, um, people I've worked with in the past, um, really notable art, artists and producers about what makes them tick. Um, I got kind of tired of talking about myself. I want to hear other people talk. And, and um, <laughs> so the next season um, will be going live in, in a month or so. We've, we've just, I, I just this morning recorded a really cool long um, uh, podcast with a, an artist that I, I think shared some, some really great stuff. So I, I'm really excited to get that out. Um, but my existing podcast, the first season of that making vinyl at MasterDisc has got a ton of information, uh, about all things vinyl, um, the old school techniques and why some of the current thinking doesn't work and, and how to navigate through the process. But, you know, I encourage people to, to, uh, write and ask questions. That's awesome. Uh, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I had a blast. So that was my interview with Scott Hull, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really interesting to learn his philosophies on what ultimately creates a great master. And I love that he focused so much on the earlier stages of the production process and how when you have the vision for what the final product is supposed to sound like, it makes it that much easier to achieve a great master because you've taken the right steps to achieve that. And I thought it was also really interesting to get into the psychology behind, you know, working with artists and making sure that you got those open lines of communication because that's obviously a really big part of the process when it comes to working with artists and clients because ultimately when everyone's on the same page, you get a better product out of it too. And lastly, I also thought it was really fun to talk about loudness and how different streaming services handle loudness. And I kind of like that Scott didn't get into giving us a specific value to shoot for when it comes to level, because like he said, you know, the dynamics of your mix can really make a big impact on the final result and what things like Spotify are ultimately going to do. So, you know, rather than get caught up in the specific numbers that you're supposed to hit, Focusing on making sure that the mix sounds as good as it can and that you've got a great arrangement so that the song is dynamic and all that kind of stuff, ultimately that's going to get you a much better result. So I kind of like that he didn't give us a specific number there, and I know that he wasn't doing that to just like hide information. He was really just trying to give us that information to make us focus on the things that really matter. So I really appreciate that. So yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. I hope that you did as well. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for information on how to create pro sounding recordings and mixes from your home studio, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I have a ton of great resources to help you out with that. On the website, there are a bunch of great things like free blog articles, cheat sheets, we got courses. If you're looking for coaching, we got coaching as well. So make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. And one resource that I'll point you to while you're there is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book that I wrote a few years ago that really breaks down the process of mixing step-by-step step so that you know exactly what steps to take, what to be listening for, how to dial in your settings, all of that kind of stuff. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com. <laughs>